This is the Tactical Leader Podcast, where we're on a journey of self-mastery and true leadership. I believe that in order to lead others, you must first be able to lead yourself. And in order to lead yourself, you have to first know yourself. If you want to learn the tactics to get to know yourself, to lead yourself, and to lead others, stay tuned to hear from industry experts as I unpack the tactics that they've used to build their business, build culture, and lead others. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Uh, there's a beautiful piece of what's happening this evening that can only happen thanks to a few select and special people that are in the room. I did this earlier, but I want to make sure, as, as we've had more friends join us this evening, I want to celebrate the veterans after a long week of emotion. I know for myself as an Army guy, go Army, anybody? Thank you. Thank you. We do have some Navy in the room. Meh. Nah. Maybe a smidge of Marine. I know Air Force is already sitting. What about those Coasties? Do we have any Coasties in here? So as we have all you amazing individuals, if we can, if you're a veteran, please rise and let us celebrate you together. So if you don't know me, my name is Zach Knight. I'm the founder of Advancing the Line for Veterans, also known as ATL Vets. We're an organization, a 501c, that focuses on creating new mission and purpose for veterans through entrepreneurship. A big piece of this is actually creating stages like this for veterans to speak on, much like Jennifer Chase is doing this evening for us. We truly believe that there are veterans that need their stories shared, but unfortunately, too many of us are unwilling to do so, a little bit nervous, or there are so many blocks there for us. And I think that we as a community can further that where we can actually bring veterans on stage and let them share their stories of true impact, much like what you're going to hear from the general tonight. There are a few people that I have to give a very special thanks to because they made this capable, possible, and truly a room filled with amazing individuals like yourselves. The first organization I want to say thanks to is a little bit out of order because I'm going to introduce him next, but the, the CEO of this amazing, amazing location in a history center, as well as their staff. Can we please give them a huge round of applause? We also have some amazing individuals from the Atlanta Press Club, the World Affairs Council, BINS, Business Executives for National Security, as well as our main sponsor this evening, Hennessy, from uh, Steve Hennessy and Hennessy Automotive. If you don't mind, please give them a round of applause as well. There's one other organization that I'm a part of that I want to make sure I highlight. There's a huge collaboration happening in Atlanta, and it's thanks to Vetlanta. While there is a similarity between ATL Vets and Vetlanta, I'm actually the marketing chair for Vetlanta. We host quarterly summits. Our next one's coming up at the Emory Business School in December. And the president of Vetlanta, as well as several board members are here. If you would, please rise so we can applaud y'all as Vetlanta and amazing things happening in Atlanta. As you notice, my list of partners is long because I believe true collaboration and partnership happen here at the intersection of sharing stories among veterans. 
The next individual, as I mentioned, is the CEO of this amazing, amazing venue, Sheffield Hale. He's an amazing individual that has truly, when I tell you, has opened his doors, literally, figuratively, in so many amazing ways to make a young organization like ATL Vets successful in an evening like this. Across today, we've had over a thousand attendees here to hear from amazing words from General Petraeus. And without further ado, I do want to introduce, introduce Sheffield Hale, the CEO of Atlanta History Center. Thank you very much. Well, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not a veteran, so I can't go through all of this business about various services and things like that. But I can say to all the Georgia Tech people in the house, uh, go dogs. Um, that's all I can do. And so anyway, thank you, Zach. And we are really grateful for your, the partnership along with the business executives for national security to be able to ho host General Petraeus here tonight. In 2026, the Atlanta History Center will mark 100 years of connecting people, history, and culture. As a museum and a history organization, we strive to preserve the history of this region and the country so we can learn from our mistakes and triumphs alike to create a better Atlanta. The history of veterans is a critical part of this effort. Veterans help us learn about the values that bring us together and the importance of preserving freedom and democracy for our children and grandchildren. As a founding member of the Library of Congress's Veterans History Project, Atlanta History Center is proud to be a repository of the stories of our nation's veterans. Looking around this room, in addition to the Georgia Tech people, I see many people who have contributed their story in the form of an oral history interview or by donating artifacts to our collections. So far, we've collected nearly 850 interviews and made 746 available online. Thank you all for participating. And once we get those pesky last hundred online, we're gonna have to go out and get a lot more interviews. We are really looking for people who have been engaged in the war on terror because we think they need to tell us their stories. Nobody can tell it better. And we really appreciate all of those who have. But please, if you have a friend, if you're a veteran, please come and tell your story. We need to hear it. We, this, the country needs to have it. Now, though we're here to, you know, to talk about one of our, and meet one of our most decorated generals of modern time, David Petraeus, for, me, for, for now, I'd really like to, what I'd like to do is I'm going to introduce our moderator, Ricky Bevington. Ricky is an Emmy Award-winning journalist, president of the World Affairs Council of Atlanta, and executive in residence at Georgia State University's Robinson College of Business. The World's Affairs Council of Atlanta is a nonpartisan, nonprofit membership organization. It provides a forum for informed discussion of global affairs that impact Metro Atlanta's economy, culture, and quality of life. Prior to her current role, she spent two decades as a television and radio journalist, during which she's interviewed people ranging from Dolly Parton to Salmon Rushdie to former President Jimmy Carter and now General Petraeus. For many of us here in Atlanta, when we need a calm, thoughtful, wealth-researched voice to turn to for analysis of global local issues alike, we turn to Ricky Bevington, as she reported on Georgia Public Broadcasting, PBS NewsHour, and the National Public Radio. She's received many awards for her work and is also engaged in extensive travel and reporting. She also has a knack of being places at the right time, like tonight. In 2011, she traveled with Atlanta's uh, Middle Eastern Travel Seminar to Israel, Jordan, and the West Bank and Sinai right after the Arab Spring. In 2019, she attended President Vladimir Zelensky's election night party in Kiev, Ukraine. So she's like Zelig. She just shows up at the right time. I'm so grateful for her to be here tonight to conduct this interview. Please join me in welcoming Ricky Bevington. 
What a beautiful introduction. And in 2019, when I was at Zelensky's election night party, it was in one of the hottest nightclubs in Kiev. Zelensky is an actor, right? A comedian. And we walk in, house music is thumping, the lights are down, and it's ping pong tables everywhere. That was a presidential election night party. Many, many years before we knew what President Volodymyr Zelensky would be put through uh, as president of Ukraine. So thank you for that beautiful introduction, Sheffield. Thanks to all of you for being here. This is a very special opportunity. I have the great privilege of introducing General David Petraeus, who's one of the leading battlefield commanders and strategists of our time. He served over 37 years in the U.S. military, culminating his career with six consecutive commands as a general officer, five of which were in combat, including command of the surge in Iraq, U.S. Central Command, and NATO-U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He subsequently served as director of the CIA during a period of significant achievements in the global war on terror. General Petraeus graduated with distinction from the U.S. Military Academy, earned a Ph.D. from Princeton University, and has held academic appointments at five universities in addition to his current position at Yale. His awards include four Defense Distinguished Service Medals, the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, the Bronze Star Medal for Valor, the Combat Action Badge, the Ranger Tab, and Master Parachutist Wings. And he's given me permission to tell you that he was runner-up to Vladimir Putin for Time Person of the Year in 2007. But he redeemed himself by being sanctioned by Russia in 2022. Welcome to the stage, General David Petraeus. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the kind introduction. Thanks, Zach, for all you did to pull this together. Thanks, Sheffield, for literally opening your doors. Thanks to all of you for being here. I must say that as I heard the rivalry between Georgia and Georgia Tech, it took me back a little bit to when I was a captain serving at Fort Stewart, Georgia, a few hours from here, of course, an hour or so from Savannah and Hinesville, Georgia. And I remember at that time, Vince Dooley was the, the coach of the Bulldogs. And there was this wonderful ad that my wife and I loved on television. It was actually Vince Dooley's wife. And she was selling hot dogs somehow, or there's some kind of thing. And she used to say, you might think of them as Dooley's other dogs. <laughs> This is still a source of humor in the Petraeus household, but it really is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for reminding me that, yes, Vladimir Putin beat me out for Time Man of the Year. I've never lived it down since then, but I guarantee you that he didn't throw out a pitch in the World Series game in uniform and flip a coin at the Super Bowl in uniform either. <laughs> I would think this, these days it's a privilege to be sanctioned by Russia. It's a huge privilege. I was very <laughs> proud of it. That's why I added it to my CV. <laughs> you think I'm joking. I mean, I, this war in Ukraine is personal for me. Well, that's actually great because I'm going to ask you why this book and why now. And I think that Ukraine is very much part yeah, of it. Yeah, it is. So I knew my co-author, Andrew Roberts. Uh, a lot of you will know one of the greatest historians and biography biographers of our time. He and I had done a lot together over the years. His Churchill book, his George III book, that was The Last King of America. We had fun with that. And a number of others. And he called me up after Russia invaded Ukraine. And he said, 
you know, we really need to have a military history context for what's going on in Ukraine, and it doesn't exist. And he said, I've, I've, I've done 20 books, or this will be the 20th book. I've never done one with a co-author, but would you be willing to do that? And the truth is, I've been looking for an opportunity to write about Iraq and Afghanistan, but not doing it in a tell-all memoir or something like that. My PhD dissertation was on Vietnam, and I was eager to go back and look at all that had transpired in the 25 or 30 years since then. So I jumped at the chance, and we got on with it. It was interesting that then, you know, you have to talk to publisher. You got to sell the book, you know, at a certain point in time. I learned, you know, he does this for a living. I'm doing this sort of for fun and handy. And by the way, you left a fairly significant thing off my CV. I'm also a partner in one of the world's largest investment firms, KKR and chair their Global Institute, something I've been doing for the last 10 years, which is a great privilege. Uh, but so anyway, we'd talk to the publishers, and finally one of them, Harper Collins, who actually ultimately bought the book, if you will, said, well, how do you intend to divvy up the, the writing for this thing? And he said, well, General Petraeus is going to write about the countries that he's invaded. <laughs> <laughs> plus, plus Vietnam and, and a few others, and I'll fill in the rest. And we've sent literally thousands of emails back and forth. And you will see those who have the book. Iraq and Afghanistan was interesting because the original draft was in the third person, which is the way you normally write history. And it, the editor came back and said, this just does not work. You just can't sort of say, and then General Petraeus went to see Prime Minister Maliki and told him this and this, and Maliki said that and all the rest. Um, you know, you have you should write it in the first person. So just put a little asterisk over under the front of that chapter and say, I drafted this. You know, I was there as a two-star, three-star, four-star, four-star, and then later CIA director in the entire time that we, we had combat forces there for the first decade. So that's what we did, and, and it seemed to work out well. Then, of course, they said, how about reading those two chapters as well? And and I was delighted to do that also. And if you download the Audible book, he'll actually narrate those particular yes. chapters. Yep. and. So I would be remiss if I didn't consider the context we're here at the Atlanta History Center, which has done such an incredible job telling the story of the American Civil War with the cyclorama and other exhibits. So we're right now where all of us are sitting. Is that open, by the way, after for free VIP yeah, right, tour exactly. Sheffield? <laughs> with a glass with a glass with a glass of red wine, maybe? VIP okay. for one. It's really extraordinary if you haven't actually gone through the incredible exhibit. Congratulations to Sheffield and his team. Wow. So where we're sitting tonight is about 100 miles south of the Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park. It's incredible. Please go if you haven't been. But it was dedicated in 1895, 1885 by members of Congress who were veterans. So this is a full generation after the Civil War. And the idea was that they, they, need, they saw the need for a federal park to preserve and commemorate battlefields so that we could study war. That was the idea, you know, a little under 150 years ago. So my question to you, General Petraeus, you've written this incredible book about war. Why do we need to study war? Well, tragically, we have seen that this is all too timely. Uh, Ukraine wasn't the last big war of our time. We're now watching a terrible fight between Israel and an extremist army, which is, I think, the way to describe Hamas. They're they are the equivalent of the Islamic State. I agree with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his military chief of staff. They have to be destroyed. And again, this book provides context for that as well. In fact, there's a lot of lessons in the book for that and just, frankly, for leadership in general. Because 
What happened is as we went through the book, we realized that the most important determinant of success in conflict is the quality of the strategic leadership in particular. This is the senior civilian, President of the United States, sometimes Prime Minister of the UK, Falklands, and so forth. And then it's the battlefield commander, the commander in charge of the theater of war. And they have to perform four tasks very well if their side is to have a, an opportunity to win that conflict. You have to get the big ideas right. You have to really understand the context, the str strategic setting. As Clausewitz said very profoundly, you must understand the nature of the war in which you're engaged and not try to make it what you'd like it to be, but understand it as it is. So you have to understand, again, your forces, the enemy forces, the physical terrain, the human terrain, all the different aspects that bear on the particular conflict, and then craft the right strategy, get the big ideas right. Then you have to communicate the big ideas effectively throughout the breadth and depth of the organization, and really to everyone who has a stake in the outcome of that conflict. You have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. This is what we normally think of as leadership, really. This is the example that the leader provides. It's the energy, the inspiration. It's attracting great people and keeping them. It's allowing those not measuring up to move on to something else. It's how the leader spends his time. And by the way, in this audience is the woman who oversaw my schedule, Mary Kohler, who ran ramrodded this schedule that we determined. I had a battle rhythm, we called it. And we did certain things every single day of the week which included, by the way, her handing me a cup of coffee at 7.20 as I went into the this sort of theater-like command center that we had for the morning update from 7.30 to 8.30 every single day of the week, again, for that particular tour, 19 and a half months of the surge in Iraq. How you spend your time is crucial. And we had a very detailed schedule that laid out what I did every day, a few times a week, twice a week, once a week, every other week, once a month, all the way up to once a quarter, which was the quarterly civil military counterinsurgency campaign review. So that's another very important. Then you've got to get the metrics right. And the metrics have to not only be the real key elements that tell you whether you're winning or losing, they also have to be honest. They have to be rigorous. And you have to really ratchet them down and ensure where is the information coming from? How do you deconflict it? And all the rest of this. For the surge in Iraq, I, I requested and got a Rhodes Scholar Lieutenant Colonel from the Air Force Academy who came to Baghdad and helped us ratchet these numbers down because I said, I'm going to present these at the six-month mark in Congress, and I'm going to live and die on these numbers ever after that. And we did, and thankfully, of course, we were able to drive down the most important number of all, which was violence by nearly 90%, drove down civilian casualties very, very dramatically, our casualties and all the rest of that. But contrast that with, with the body count in Vietnam. And two of my old mentors are here, by the way, General Coffin and General Ellis. They f served in Vietnam. The body count was the wrong metric. And then it became a very highly suspect metric. The integrity of the reporting be eroded over time, and it actually ate at the integrity of the entire endeavor that was going on. We didn't get the big ideas right in Iraq, probably, or in uh, Afghanistan, uh, sorry, in Vietnam, uh, until somewhere around 1968. We can go through that if you, if you want later on. So all of those elements, and then there's a fourth task you cannot overlook, and that is you have to sit down, it's formal, you, it's on your battle rhythm, and you have various events, action-forcing mechanisms that require you to determine how you need to refine the big ideas to change them, to augment them as the situation changes. 
so that you can do it again and again and again. This applies in the business world as well, uh, as a wonderful example with Netflix of all things. Reed Hastings, one of the great strategic leaders of our time up there with Jack Ma of Alibaba and uh, Jeff Bezos of, of Amazon and so forth. He reinvented that organization three times after the original big idea, which is basically to put movies in the hands of customers without brick and mortar. Uh, and that's what they do. And of course, they basically put Blockbuster out of business a few years. Some of you will know that there's one still left in, in the continental United States, and that's in Big Bend, Oregon. You're right. Uh, it's a contrarian place. It refuses to let its Blockbuster die. And all of us can go there for feeling nostalgic for the opportunity to rent movies from brick and mortar. And it's a tourist attraction. But anyway, that's the first big idea. Then he notices that the context is changing. Broadband speeds are faster. So the new big idea is we're going to allow people to download movies. So that works that through. Third big idea is we're going to create our own content. This is the breakout moment for Netflix. $100 million on House of Cards alone, many of the other iconic series that we associate with that particular brand. And then the fourth big idea is we're going to make major motion pictures. And they go out and buy not one, but two major studios. And they do so well, talk about a great metric, uh, that they get more Academy Award nominations three years ago, I think it was, than any other major motion picture studio. So you can see how this works. There is one issue there. I talked to Reed Hastings, by the way, about this model. He has something that is very similar. I also noted, though, that I had an issue where this movie where Brad Pitt played General Stan McChrystal, and I said, it just does not work. Brad Pitt's all, he's very wooden. He marches around like a little toy soldier. It doesn't capture Stan, has a sense of humor. And I said, besides, I just cannot believe that Brad Pitt didn't hold out to play me. <laughs> but you get the idea. Strategic leadership is absolutely critical. And as you look at, again, any endeavor in life, really, but it's especially important if you're at the very top. And all leaders, by the way, perform these four tasks but it's only the ones at the very top that make the really big decisions about the big ideas. Everyone else is working within the intent of that commander at the top, as I was privileged to do when, in fact, General Ellis was the four-star forces command, and I was one of his two-star division commanders. There are many executives in the audience, so while we're talking about the, the parallels between running a, a military and a war and running a large operation, it sounds like what you're saying is being uh, adaptable and obviously being able to innovate according to new data and information. Very much so. So, so the, 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 the title of the book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. So very broadly, how has war evolved since 1945? Specifically, which wars pushed the evolutionary process forward most significantly? Well, it's, it's which ones did and which ones didn't in a way. I mean, but... You know, how do you have evolution in warfare? Well, you have evolution in tactics, strategy, technology, hardware, all of that. And the question is, can, again, the particularly the strategic commander on the battlefield recognize, again, what is the nature of the war? How has war evolved? We've seen it where a number of the wars about which we write were essentially counterinsurgency campaigns. Not that the strategic leaders always understood that quite as well as they might have, including both the French and the, then the Americans in, in Vietnam. And then you have the advent of technology that really transforms it. You know, when I was privileged to command in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were just getting in these drone fleets. These transform how you fight. 
all of a sudden, you know, it's the drone that can be up over it then helps you find the enemy. And then it's precision munitions. That was another big breakthrough. But we've gone, we've evolved from an era, you know, back in fact, when I was the brigade operations officer for then Colonel Ellis in Schweinfurt, Germany, we had an old adage. It was titled, you know, what can be seen can be hit, what can be hit can be killed. The truth is we actually couldn't see all that well. We were trying to have depth in the battlefield, but we really had nothing like what we had now. And even if we could see it some beyond the forward edge of the battle, you couldn't hit something moving all that effectively. Nowadays, you can see everything. Intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance is unparalleled, and you can hit just about everything that's out there as well. If you think of an Indo-Pacific theater, if it's above the surface, you can see it, you can find it, and you can hit it, and increasingly it will be hit with hypersonic that move maneuvers right at the last minute, so it's even hard to defend against. So you can see how this is evolving, but, but then you have these great curious situations, if you will. Ukraine, where the great Washington Post columnist Max Boot has characterized as the war where all quiet on the Western Front meets Blade Runner. Think about it. You have World War I-like trenches down in the South, miles deep minefields, lots of artillery, barbed wire, all of this. Again, very reminiscent uh, of the front lines in, in World War I, except Blade Runner, you got drones right over top of the minefield. So it's even tougher to get through these minefields because, and you have accurate fire in a way that wasn't present before. And you have, you have sensor to shooter links, digital links, and you can immediately put it on the guns, et cetera. And then you see uh, actually the same tanks that we were using back in the day in Schweinfurt, M1 Abrams tanks, the Germans had Leopards, those are the tanks we're providing. Yeah, their product improved and so forth, but still roughly the same systems. And on the Russian side, it's the same systems we were faced off there, T-62s, 64s, 72s, some 80s, and some T-90s, although nowhere near as much modern systems as Russia advertised. So it's a very, almost a hybrid war. And you see what the Ukrainians have done with their own technology, creating maritime drones that are so effective that they've essentially forced the Russian Black Sea fleet largely to withdraw from their most important port in the Crimean Peninsula, the port of Sevastopol. And they've had to move it to a greater range. And now the Ukrainians are actually following them to the next one. So warfare, again, is constantly evolving, particularly if you're, if you're losing, it gives you an impetus to get it right, such as, frankly, where we were before we conducted the surge in Iraq. But it goes in fits and starts. And the truth is that Ukraine has hints of the future, but it is not the future of warfare. The future of warfare is where we replace the small number of large platforms we have with massive quantities of much smaller unmanned systems that will, in many cases, no longer be remotely piloted, but will actually be piloted by algorithms, where the man in the, in the loop becomes the man on the loop, the person who decides the conditions that the machine has to meet to take a certain action, and then actually creates the program that guides the machine in the performance of those tasks. That's a brave new world, and there's ethical concerns very real about that, but that is where we're headed. Well, to have an algorithm decide, well, we'll get to the future of war. Well, we welcome, to, welcome to the brave new world. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Ukraine as well as uh, the, the two uh, very hot wars right now in Ukraine and, 
in Gaza. But let's go to the two countries that you did invade, mm -hmm. per your, your co-author's terms. <laughs> well, I really didn't invade uh, Afghanistan. <laughs> right. That was a little later. Sorry, than I was trying to, but Iraq, trying to echo what you said. The, you write that the surge in Iraq that mattered most was not the surge of forces. What did you mean by that? Well, the surge of forces was hugely important. And this was a very courageous decision by President George W. Bush, who's senior military were not particularly enthusiastic about committing more forces to a war that they felt we were losing. Keep in mind that the situation had eroded very, very seriously during the course of 2006 after a particularly pernicious and horrible bombing by Al-Qaeda, a Sunni extremist organization of a Shia shrine, third or fourth holiest Shia shrine in Iraq, that was in a Sunni area. So there was a sacred responsibility for the Sunni to preserve that shrine. Al-Qaeda gets through that. They, they do enormous damage to it. And it sets off a cycle of sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia that by the end of the year is a full-blown civil war in many parts of the country. So the president decides he's not going to continue to withdraw. Uh, he's going to provide additional forces one of the service chiefs actually said, we're afraid this could break our service. The president said, I'll tell you what will break a service and that's losing a war. And he was right. And it was an incredibly courageous decision. He selected a new commander, a new ambassador, a new secretary of defense, and then empowered the commander and the ambassador. And the surge that mattered most was the surge of ideas. It was the change of big ideas. People talk a lot about change management, you can't change any more than 180 degrees, which is literally what we did. We had been pulling out of the neighborhoods, consolidating our forces on big bases to go home and handing off to the Iraqi security forces. And we realized that that strategy, which had been valid up until early 2006, had been invalidated by the violence. And we needed to completely reverse it. We had to go back into the neighborhood. So the biggest of the big ideas was secure and serve the people, we can only do that by living with them and taking back control from the Iraqi security forces. By the way, the prime minister of Iraq did not want that to happen. We had a very serious issue in day three where the national security advisor of Iraq called me in and said, General, I have a series of demands. This is what the prime minister intends to do. I knew the national security advisor well because I'd worked with him closely as a three-star. When I was there, I'd helped write, actually did write most of the national security strategy for Iraq. And these were all the exact opposite of what we intended to do. And I, this is a big moment. I mean, this is literally an all-in moment on day three where I said, National Security Advisor, Doctor, if that's what the Prime Minister truly intends to do, I'd appreciate him telling that to President Bush tomorrow in the normal scheduled video conference. Well, I'll attend for the first time together with the ambassador. But he should know that if he chooses to do that, he's going to do it without me because I'm going to be on the next plane to Washington and I intend to take the policy with me. Now, needless to say, I did not sleep real well that night. The blood was coursing through my body as I said that to him. I went to the video conference the next day with the ambassador. We never heard anything of it again and we got on with what we knew we needed to do. But we also reconciled with some of the, what we believed were reconcilable members, the very low level members of the insurgent groups and then those that sort of tacitly or actively help them, and then we even more relentlessly pursued the irreconcilables, 12 to 15 operations by our special mission unit operators every single night that we were there, very targeted operations, 
and then clear, hold, not clear and hand off or clear and leave, clear, hold, build, and then go farther, helped with, again, going after the high-value targets at the same time. So the, the surge of ideas was what really, really mattered, the change in strategy. We could have had the five Army Brigade combat teams, and in fact, General Ellis again provided to us, and the two Marine battalions, and we might have made some progress, but it would not have been driving violence down by nearly 90%, which is what our great men and women in uniform and our coalition and Iraqi partners achieved in 18 months, and basically gave the country an entire new opportunity, which they did well with for the next three and a half years, until tragically, right after our combat forces left, the prime minister reversed some of the actions uh, and undid some of that. They took their eye off Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was by then the Islamic State. It was allowed to reconstitute, and you had the first ever extremist caliphate uh, of the Islamic State. By the way, keep your eye on that when it comes to Hamas. I believe that Israel does need to destroy Hamas and its junior partner, Islamic Jihad. But keep in mind that if you don't keep them from reconstituting a few years down the road, you have that problem back. And that's going to be the thorniest of all the issues with which they have to deal in the post-conflict phase. And that's saying a lot because there are a lot of thorny issues they have to deal with even after Hamas is destroyed. Turning to Afghanistan, some have argued that Afghanistan was the United States 21st century Vietnam. You disagree? Yeah, I, you know, again, there was a lot of this Afghanistan is our, our Vietnam now. I just didn't buy that because I felt that Afghanistan was actually sustainable. It was dissatisfactory, it was frustrating, it was maddening, but it was not Vietnam. Vietnam was unsustainable, tragically. By the time we got the strategy right and first had under General Abrams a really comprehensive approach with all the organizational uh, entities required, the right organizational architecture, the right big ideas, the right civil military all joined up reasonably well for the first time in the war, domestic public opinion had already eroded so much. And the commitment was so large compared with that. You know, at one point, we had way over 500,000 troops on the ground in Vietnam. This is not sustainable. The cost was enormous. And then, of course, the domestic, again, support just completely collapsed after Tet and stayed very low. On the other hand, Afghanistan, at the end, we had 3,500 troops on the ground. A lot of drones, to be sure. Uh, our coalition partners wanted to stay. We had not lost a soldier in 18 months, and not just because of the agreement that we reached that I think was the worst diplomatic agreement in our history with the Taliban, but because we were no longer in the front lines. Because we had drones and because we had actually partners that were willing to fight when someone had their back and had the helicopters working and all the rest of that, the Afghan soldiers lost 16 times what we lost in those 10 years of war. So the statement after it all collapse that they would not fight. It was true at that point, but that's because nobody was coming to the rescue. As long as they knew someone had their back, they would have continued fighting. And yes, the situation was frustrating. Yes, it was maddening, but we could afford 3,500 troops and $25 billion out of a budget of $850 billion for defense. And I felt that that was a preferable situation by far than what I feared might happen and what actually has happened, which is a disastrous outcome for the Afghans as well as, I think, for that entire region. I don't think there is an extremist threat from there that can reach us the way Al-Qaeda's 9-11 attacks planned on Afghan soil obviously killed nearly 3,000 Americans on 
But it was more than a bit ironic that the Taliban, who agreed that they would not allow extremists on their soil, ended up having the leader of al-Qaeda in a Taliban-controlled house three blocks from the presidential palace in Kabul, where, of course, our uh, intelligence organization located them and greeted him one morning as he went out for his morning coffee in a balcony with a particular system that was quite precise. <laughs> I was also there when we finally caught up with bin Laden, by the way. I yeah. mean, yeah, he obviously got away. You know, the truth, the problem with Afghanistan was that we didn't get the inputs right for, even, for nine years. We had a brilliant initial campaign. Special forces on horseback, CIA officers with footlockers of money, warlords with tribal fighters that could force the Taliban to mass. And then we clobbered them with air power, shattered them. They all, the remnants retreated into Pakistan. And then we eliminated the Al-Qaeda sanctuary. Yeah, so Osama bin Laden did get away that time. But then we took our focus off Afghanistan. We focused on Iraq. Iraq consumed everything. And it wasn't until many years, it wasn't until after the surge that we were able to draw down the, the surge forces in Iraq, could finally refocus on Afghanistan, realize how increasingly out of control it was becoming, then finally get the big ideas right, get the right level of forces, diplomats, spies, development workers, rule of law, the right organizational architecture, the right preparation of our forces, the right commanders, all of these finally at about the nine-year mark. But we had squandered time that you can never get back, allowed the Taliban to reestablish, reconstitute again. And of course, they had sanctuaries in a neighboring country that was the most maddening aspect of Afghanistan and the most challenging because Pakistan would not go after those forces on their soil, even though they were taking apart their neighbor or trying to, nor would they allow us to go after them, which was, again, the most maddening aspect of that particular situation. That said, again, we ultimately did get into a reasonable situation. And I felt that that was sustainable in a way, again, that Vietnam just never was. I wish that we could get to every conflict that you talk about in this book. I mean, it really is exhaustive, 75 years. Everything from Gibraltar to the Falklands, and of course the biggies, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Ukraine. You mentioned the diplomatic agreement with the Taliban, which you just said was a terrible idea. Let's pause for a moment and talk about the role of diplomacy and diplomats. I now run the World Affairs Council of Atlanta. So this is a world that I now work in. And I really do understand what American diplomacy does to deter conflict, to ensure our private sector interests, obviously our government interests, our economic interests, we're in a position right now where our diplomats are not being confirmed by Congress. This is a very real issue for American citizens. You work very closely with diplomats. What can diplomats do for the U.S. military that is so essential in your experience? All the stuff that the military can't do. <laughs> I remember, in fact, I, I remember I used to be asked by the Secretary of State when I was a four-star to come back to Washington, no kidding, and to testify before the Appropriations Subcommittee on whatever it was, foreign relations and the, the things that get the State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development money. And, you know, my argument was very similar to what General Mattis famously said. You know, if you don't get us diplomats, you're going to have to get us more bullets. Uh, they are hugely important. And I was privileged to work with, I believe, the greatest diplomat of his generation, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who was, yeah, I agree. And, you know, this is somebody who was the ambassador to every difficult place you can imagine. Pakistan, Afghanistan, 
He actually ran the flag up right after we liberated it. And then he came back some years later, Iraq, where I was privileged to part with him, also in Afghanistan. And then also Syria, where I think they sacked his, his residence at one point in time, Kuwait, right after liberation, and some others, a really extraordinary individual. And we had a partnership that I think is unequaled in history in the same way that we had a president who empowered us in a way that no president ever has before or since. When the president of the United States starts a meeting on a Monday morning at 7.30 a.m. with all the national security team around the national security table, you know what his priority was. And it was Iraq, and it was a video conference with the ambassador and me, certainly all the rest of them around the table. By the way, look at the White House schedule that, you know, the public schedule is always announced. It's out there. It's a rare day that has something that happens before 10 a.m. This is 7.30 a.m. on Monday morning. So imagine the poor action officers who had to be in there on Saturday night to go through. By the way, I used to send a memo back on Saturday or on Sunday evening so that they would have that and they could pick that apart because that's what they're going to hear about the next day. And he immediately went to the ambassador and to me. He didn't ask the CIA director how are things going in Iraq. He had the commander and the ambassador. We decided early on that we would do everything together. Every time that we met either one of us with the prime minister, we would go together. Every congressional delegation we did together. Every session with the, with the president, certainly the vice president when he came over, all of these. And we even did a civil military counterinsurgency campaign. And I remember when, when it came out and I sent it back to the Pentagon, they said, you know, there's an awful lot of civilian crap in this, this campaign <laughs> plan. And I said, yes, very good. That's because it's a civil military counterinsurgency campaign, which is what it has to be. It has to all be joined up. And that's the way we were. We waited, frankly, for one or others of our organizations to protest about something, you know, that his civilian, the, the country team, as it's called, which is basically everything except for the military, that they might gripe about something and then or that some military guys might gripe about because we were joined at the hip all the way down uh, our our three star two-star, full-colonel headquarters all had diplomatic elements in them called provincial reconstruction teams because you you not only, again, clear and hold, you have to rebuild these areas. And to have Agency for International Development experts with us is sure a lot better than repurposing an infantryman as, as capable, of course, as infantrymen are. Uh, they can do anything uh, <laughs> on a moment's notice. You know, and then you throw in the odd sailor, airman, and marine. <laughs> well, I and you might really have a, space have a cocktail. And by the way, by the way, whoever it was, again, don't forget the Space Force Act. I mean, they're now called guardians. So we have soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, and guardians. So, but all of those together. But so he was really, really extraordinary. And we had this great partnership. I should note as well that I came back at the three-month mark. I had agreed that I would come back for a public hearing at the six-month mark. That was part of the concession I had to give during the confirmation hearing. And, and I came back for a, at the three month for a private hearing. Every single senator was there. I think there are 98 out of 100. The only others were, were ill or something. So this is serious stuff. And a military guy typically never is, is, actually testifies alone other than the confirmation hearing. You're, you're assigned, you know, we used to chair, say there, there are minders. So I had to have the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I had to have the deputy secretary of state, I think was another one, and the deputy secretary of defense, I think something like that. So it was a lineup. 
the problem was I realized that I actually knew their elements better than they knew them because we were actually out there executing. So I went back to Ambassador Crocker and I said, I hate to say this, but I think we need to go back together. That means though, that we have to do two additional committees each. And these are grueling sessions. I mean, you're in a grinding situation already. And now we're gonna go back and you're gonna face again, these skeptical, critical, and by the way, many of them were running for president. So they're out to make points off of each of us. The truth is though, people would say, you know, God, you must really dread that. I actually didn't. You know, I actually knew something about Iraq. You want to ask me a question about Iraq? Bring it on. Give me your high, hard fun. <laughs> and of course, I mean, once you have results, and thankfully by the six-month mark, just at the four-month-ish four mark, all of a sudden violence turned down. And so we had real results to report. And then it went way, way down uh, after that. So then then it becomes a lot different. I remember though, at about the three or four month mark, one of my great mentors, General Jack Keene, some of you will see him in, on Fox, a huge mentor of mine. And he came out and he said, Dave, you got, a, you got a PR problem. I said, General, I don't have a PR problem. We have a results problem. And once the results change, our PR problem will go away. And it did. But we did also, we had a big idea for dealing with the press. It was be first with the truth. We weren't gonna put lipstick on pigs anymore. We weren't gonna, try to spin. We were just going to report it exactly as it took place, but we wanted to try to beat the bad guys to the headline when it came out to what was going on in Baghdad. Well, speaking of actually publishing the truth, you talk about the beginning of the inv Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 and before, that part of the strategy was to for the U.S. and allies to actually tell everybody what was happening. Yeah, it's really quite dramatic. Yes, I think it's unprecedented to have a situation in which you have essentially finished intelligent products, which were all showing that Russia was mobilizing for an invasion of Ukraine and was going to invade. And then you launder that, if you will, into publicly releasable information without exposing sources and methods. That's not that easy. And yeah, they, they did a brilliant job with that. I, I don't think this has ever been done before on that, certainly in that scale over a period of time. And it proved to be exactly right, which then gets a great deal of credibility for what you say after that. So I, I thought that was a very impressive development and a unique development. And I think we'll see it in the future a fair amount as well. Well, you've called the, the war in Ukraine the first open source war. Yeah. What is it? But you've also now said that what we're seeing in Ukraine is not the future of war. So what's new well, in Ukraine? Well, the, the open source war really gets at the idea that this is the most transparent war we've ever had. Never before has there been a war in which every person on the battlefield has a smartphone, access to the internet, and the ability to upload images, videos, and so forth to social media sites. Even during Iraq, you know, a decade earlier or so, when we were doing media monitoring, we were basically monitoring TV channels, print media still, radio channels. And we had people listening to these, all of these nonstop. There were teams doing this because you have to respond. This is like a political campaign. But now, of course, how do you monitor all these different social media sites, much less all the little websites into which people, you know, bury themselves and so forth that can be quite stovepiped. So the challenges is much greater but there is an availability of open source intelligence, as it's called, that is really quite extraordinary. And if you are an assiduous researcher, if you can mine all this stuff, and then there are even actually, so in fact, one is called data miner. It's a data aggregator 
that scours the, the World Wide Web and then sends you stuff that is of interest to you and is very real time. So you put, put all that together. And then I'm on the board of an organization called Institute for the Study of War. If you look at whose maps, CNN, all the major networks use, they're the ones that do those maps. And they put it all together based on open source. And it's really quite extraordinary what you can do with that now. Whereas in the past, you were much, much more dependent on uh, classified sources and methods. Now you have to merge that with what you can get in open source. And your book has just incredible stories about using, you know, Russian troops, using Ukrainian cell phone towers, chatting about what they're doing and where they are. And Ukrainians are listening because they're in their cell phone towers, meeting open source work. Can you give us just another good example? Well, there's, example? I mean, what really is striking is how unmodern modern certain aspects of the Russian forces have been. They had a much touted modernization program. It would roll through Red Square every year. It looked great. A lot of it was Potemkin. They had a handful of this, a handful of that. But when it came to their real command and control networks, for example, we give us what you should have for tactical command and control. You don't want to broadcast too far. So we use FM. You want to have it frequency hop so the enemy can't lock in on it and jam it. And you want to have it secure, encrypted as well. So even if they can, they can't understand what's being said. The Russians use HF, broadcast very widely. Anybody can pick it up with a police scanner. It's in the clear. It's not encrypted. And it's single channel. And so the Ukrainian civilians sit there at home with their police scanner and they listen. If the Russians are criticizing their officers, they'll record it and then upload it on social media. If, on the other hand, if it's, you know, serious stuff, then they'd listen for a while, glean the intelligence, and then they just transmit on top of it and they jam it. So then the Russian soldiers started using their cell phones. Well, again, as you said, they bounce off a cell tower and you can monitor that. Then they decided, let's not even let them use the cell tower. So they deny whatever area code, if you will, equivalent of Russian cell phones so they can no longer communicate on the Ukrainian grid. So then the Russians start stealing Ukrainian cell phones. So then the Ukrainians use find my iPhone. And, they, you know, this is just, it, it's just unbelievable. And that's where the drone drops. <laughs> yeah, you know. And then you have Zelensky, who's this extraordinarily gifted, as you noted, you know, Churchill with an iPhone or something like this. But by the way, think of the quality of strategic leadership. You have a wonderful compare and contrast between Zelensky and Putin. Zelensky's first, by the way, to be fair, and as you noted, Zelensky was an actor. He was a comedian who played the president so well that he gets elected president. Um, he's elected on a reformist campaign. He actually doesn't do all that spectacularly well the first two and a third years. And then Russia attacks. What's his first big idea? I don't want to ride. I want ammunition. Second, I'm going to stay in Kiev. My family's going to stay in Kiev. We're going to defend Kiev to the death and all males are going to stay in Ukraine and we're going to mobilize the entire country. This is our war of independence. So in a lot of pretty powerful, big ideas, his communication skills, again, given his acting background and all that have been truly Churchillian, you know, with very differentiated, meaningful messages for the UK parliament, our Congress, the first individual wartime commander in chief, in fact, to address both houses of our Congress since Churchill did it actually. And then his example, think of this, he takes a suit off on the first day, puts on a OD sweatshirt, he's worn it ever since, variations on that from time to time. 
inspirational, great example. He's at the front lines at Bakhmut. He's down in Zaporizhia. You know, where is Putin? Putin's at the end of a long marble table with the minions down there so far that, you know, they almost have to have a microphone to be heard. Um, so really, really quite impressive strategic leadership from Zelensky. Yes, it's not over. And this is an uncertain situation. And Russia still occupies 18% of Ukrainian soil, to be sure. I believe this is as right versus wrong as it gets. I believe that NATO security doesn't end at the NATO borders anymore. It ends at the Ukraine-Russia border. Ukraine is fighting our enemy. And by the way, I'm in a world now, you know, investment world where return on investment sort of matters. Think of the return on the investment we've gotten. We've put $44 billion into security assistance to Ukraine. Europeans have pledged a little bit more than that. And with that, uh, they have destroyed over 60% of the Russian tank fleet. That is not a bad return on investment. Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> that, was, that was Marine for what the Army would say, Hua, or... <laughs> Or the seals would say, hoo-yah, or but I, we'll stop there. So then you contrast that with Putin, who completely underestimates the Ukrainian response and our response, by the way, probably because we didn't have the strategic patience to stay in, in Afghanistan. And then the way that withdrawal was conducted. Remember, President Xi seized on that and said, see, can't count on the Americans. And look at how it went. They're a great power in decline. What another message in the book is what happens in one part of the world reverberates in other parts of the world. In fact, I was in Southeast Asia. I was in a country and meeting with the prime minister when the red line in Syria turned out not to be a red line. And he said, you know what, General? That has repercussions out here. And at some point, we might want to get to the Indo-Pacific when it comes to deterrence and this kind of thing. Well, then let's talk about deterrence. You you repeat, you argue repeatedly about deterrence. This is obviously coming from a general. So consider the source, but I'd like for you to expand on that. You argue repeatedly the hey, cost— Hey, come on. I argued for more, more State Department spending, <laughs> well, not you love defense spending. I love that. I That's love that. right. You say deterrence is a fraction of the cost exactly. of the conflict when it comes. Yep. So here we are as U.S. Congress debates sending military aid to Ukraine, as well as Israel, but let's focus on Ukraine. What lessons should they learn from history for guidance? Again— what you do in one part of the world matters in other parts. If we don't have the wherewithal, again, with an 850 billion, probably closer to 900 billion defense budget. And by the way, that's over two years now. So we're talking 1.8 or 1.7 trillion. We can afford 44 billion uh, in assistance to Ukraine and we should provide them more. They're fighting in our, they're fighting our war for us. The, the threat to NATO is vastly reduced because of what they're doing. We're not actually fighting that war. People keep saying, gosh, can we fight two wars and still, we're not fighting any of these wars. We're helping other people fight these wars. By the way, that's the way you wanna do it. We finally got to that with what is best termed advise, assist, and enable, which is how we enable the Iraqi security forces and the Syrian democratic forces to destroy the Islamic State in Iraq, in Syria. But again, if you don't have the strategic patience and wherewithal to do that, why would they believe that you're gonna have the will to employ your forces in the much more important theater. Look, it's all about the Indo-Pacific theater. I personally believe we should very quickly do a bill that has not just Ukraine, but absolutely Israel. It should have our southern border. There ought to be something in there for Taiwan and put it all together and just get on with it and stop the, you know, these. By the way, I am non-political. I don't even register to vote, much less to support a candidate. And, I, and interestingly, members of either party 
do consult on a fairly regular basis. But look, the big show is the Indo-Pacific. And deterrence is a function of two elements. It's the potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ them on the other. I mean, that's why President Biden seemingly has slipped up not one, two, three, but four times and said, we'll come to the rescue of Taiwan. He wants there to be no doubt in Beijing that we would, in fact, enter that if Taiwan was invaded. Yes, his national security advisor rushes out then and says there's no change to our policy of strategic ambiguity and all the rest of that, uh, because you don't want to be needlessly provocative, but you do have to be firm. And we do need to transform our forces from, again, a small number of large platforms, which are incredibly capable. Loved having two aircraft carrier task forces in the Central Command area when I was there all the time, but also increasingly vulnerable. That has to transform to a massive number of small, again, systems that are increasingly going to be algorithmically piloted, not just remotely piloted. And that is essential. So again, deterrence, yeah, it costs a lot of money. Yep, if it gets to 900 billion, that is a heck of a lot of money on defense. But deterrence is a lot cheaper than war. And if we're a conflict to break out between the US and China, that would be catastrophic for the entire world. Before we go back to the Indo-Pacific, let's let's pause on Israel and and what's happening in Gaza. You spend a lot of time with various wars between Israel and neighbors, <laughs> but you also also talk about the the Israeli army. It's a citizen army rather than a professional army. Yeah. Why is Israel's army so unique in the world? Well, there are very few true armies in which there is mandatory conscription. There are a few. Interestingly, Finland, which is now joining NATO, is one of those. And by the way, we had, but believe it or not, I had Finnish forces and Swedish forces, the other country that will join NATO once Turkey and Hungary get around to letting them in. They were, these are very, very capable forces. The Finns in particular, everyone served in Finland. They had their weapons at home. They did lots of reserve duty and all the rest of this. And this, this is what Israel is. And so, again, that is fairly unique in this day and age. It's because of necessity. To be sure, there are some elements in society that don't serve, and then there's an increasingly large Arab population, not all of whom serve either. But that intent there, why they've done that, is because they're surrounded by enemies. They're outnumbered. They're much more capable, though, increasingly so now. But they need everyone on deck. Now, that imposes a challenge, though, because when you call up 360,000 reserves, you now have 8% of the Israeli workforce in uniform. And that means that there's an economic clock here ticking, as well as the other clocks that are going around the world. And so that's a big, big challenge for them. But what it also means is that you have incredible skill sets. So, you know, I know the individual, the, when I was the CI director, it's publicly known that we work very closely with the NSA version of Israel called Unit 8200, incredibly skilled cyber experts. Also, obviously, with Mossad, Shin Bet, and then on our side, NSA. And we all work together, allegedly, according to a New York Times reporter. We did certain things with Stuxnet and the nuclear program and some other things about which I can't comment. But these individuals are incredibly skilled. They then go out, and they're a reason why Israel is known as Startup Nation, which is that it has all these extraordinary startups. Many of them, again, are all tech-related, cyber-related. Look, they go to war, 
all these people go back in. There's an individual, he's a venture capitalist. I've done stuff work with him. Teammate, it's called. He basically brings the best and brightest out of 8,200. They attack a problem. They create about three new companies a year. They're extraordinary. He's back. He's the deputy commander of that unit, which he commanded actually when he was younger. So you have unbelievable skill sets, but you also have a huge amount of the workforce that is now in uniform. And that is over time is not sustainable. So that is yet another one of the pressures with which they have to deal. Uh, in addition to, obviously, I think this is the most fiendishly difficult context that anyone has faced really in that period that we cover from 1945. We had a lot of tough urban battles, especially during the surge in Iraq. We cleared Ramadi, 300,000, 400,000, Fallujah, 300,000. We then finally did it the final time during the surge because we didn't let it go. We cleared and we held and we rebuilt and we very gradually transitioned. Mosul, over a million people to Crete, Baghdad, Sadr City, all these others. This is vastly more challenging. You're facing an enemy that really understands the neighborhoods, knows every nook and cranny, lives there, has built 300 miles of tunnels underneath. That's where the headquarters are, by the way, often underneath hospitals, underneath refugee camps, with weapons stored in mosques. And by the way, some of these enemy will blow themselves up to take the Israelis with them. So that means that anybody who wears bulky clothing or is driving in a vehicle and doesn't observe your direction, you may end up having to shoot them. This is, this is inc that's an incredibly pernicious threat. And to destroy Hamas, you have to clear every building, every floor, every room, every cellar, every tunnel, and you then have to hold it. Because as the veterans in here know, if you clear and go on to the next one, clear and leave, it's called, the enemy's gonna backfill behind you and you're gonna end up fighting 360 degrees. So it has to be very sequential, deliberate, progressive as you go through this and you have to hold it. So it consumes soldiers, not just in the fighting, but in the actual security of what it is that you have cleared. And you can't leave small numbers because they'll get swarmed and they'll end up as hostages to add to the 240 that are still probably underneath in tunnels and being used by an enemy who does not in the least care about civilian losses and uses civilians as human shields along with the hostages. I can just can't imagine a more challenging situation uh, than what they face. But I do agree with them that they have to destroy Hamas. They have to take down the political wing. Uh, but then the question is, then what? And we face that question in the wake of taking down Baghdad. Uh, you have to have post-conflict planning, and that is really crucial. Hey, Tom. Am I getting the hook? I think I think that. Tom Johnson, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, Tom, how are you? <laughs> Great to see you, and thanks for all you've done. I knew this guy all the way back when I think I was a young major or lieutenant colonel. Hustle and bags for the chief of staff of the army. Well, it seems to me that again, I'm non-political, so don't I don't engage in domestic politics. But it does seem to me that perhaps sending people to Washington that might actually be willing to compromise every now and then for the greater good <laughs> might have something salutary about it. But, but with that, Tom, actually, seriously, thanks for all you've done uh, for our country, especially for this particular metropolitan area uh, and the great organization that you built here. Thank you.
No, I'm, I'm, I am truly non-political in, in, in a way that actually, that actually helps because nobody can say, oh, he's this or he's that or discredit him, don't listen to him. Again, I stopped voting for a reason when I was promoted to two stars. I thought I was inspired by the example of General Marshall. I was no General Marshall, but General Marshall specifically did not participate in politics. And it meant that neither FDR nor his critics or others could could go after him over those issues. And I've tried to stay that way ever since. I've been awfully tempted once or twice by the prospects that were on the ballots, uh, but I've stayed out of that. And I, I intend to stay out of it, Tom, with thanks though. Why don't we wrap up by asking a future pointed question, which is on many of our minds, especially those who study geopolitics. Is Taiwan the next major new war? Not if we get deterrence right. Again, we have agency here. This is one of the key messages, and that is that we have to ensure that there is no question about our will. Again, you should be firm, not needlessly provocative. I'm pleased that the president is sitting down with President Xi this week in San Francisco and can try to get a floor under the relationship. I'd like to see this relationship be as mutually beneficial as is absolutely possible. But look, I'm a former CIA director. You have to deal with the world the way it is, not the way you would like it to be. And right now, the severe competition is a description of the relationship by our national security advisor. And I think that's accurate. What we have to do is make sure it never erupts into actual confrontation. The way you do that is by ensuring that the elements of deterrence are rock solid. Thank General you. David Fricreia. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Tactical Leader Podcast. If this episode helped you along your journey of self-mastery and has inspired you to do more, I challenge you to head over to myvoicechallenge.com so you can find out how you can discover your voice, claim your independence, and build that thriving business that you've always wanted. Again, that's myvoicechallenge.com.